This is season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast, which is for adults in all kinds of neurodiverse relationships, not just romantic partnerships. I'm your host, Jody Carlton, and I've spent close to two decades growing in my understanding of how our different brains influence the way we understand and relate to each other. I'm neurotypical, and I have many neurodiverse relationships of my own. Through the years, I've helped several thousand people understand themselves and their loved ones. This podcast is a place where I come together with others to talk about their journeys. I've got a great lineup of guests talking about things like masking, traits of neurodivergent folks, traits of neurotypical folks, what kind of things cause difficulties in our neurodiverse relationships, but also some of the wonderful things about our neurodiverse relationships. Also, this season is a video cast where you can enjoy watching on YouTube or you can listen to us on the podcast like you have before. If you're really enjoying this podcast and if you've gotten something out of it, please leave us a review because reviews really matter. And we want to get this out there to as many people as possible so they can benefit from it just like you. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe so you'll get notifications of upcoming podcasts and other videos that I post there as well. Welcome. What will we talk about today? On today's episode, my special guest is Dr. Carrie Magro. Carrie, if you're not familiar with him already, is an award-winning autistic professional speaker and a best-selling author. He was recently an autism consultant to the HBO series Mrs. Fletcher that aired in fall of 2019 and a consultant to the latest season of Netflix Emmy award-winning series Love on the Spectrum. Carrie has spoken at over 1,200 events, including two TED Talks and a Talks at Google presentation. In addition, Carrie is CEO and president of KFM Making a Difference, a nonprofit organization that hosts inclusion events and has provided 100 scholarships for students with autism for college since 2011. As if he's not busy enough, Carrie also hosts a Facebook page, Carrie's Autism Journey, that has over 200,000 followers. All of this is in the show notes, everybody, so you don't have to be jotting down notes. Carrie's best-selling books have reached Amazon bestseller list for special needs parenting, and I'm very grateful that he decided to join us on the show today. I just wanted to say I'm really excited to have you on this podcast. I've seen your TikToks and your Instagram posts for a while, and I think it's just amazing what you're doing. I'm really thrilled there are people like you out there. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. It takes a village. My parents were my great support system, and now to just pay it forward in a way, knowing that I'm blessed with so much to be able to give back has been truly one of the best things currently going on in my life today. I can see that, and that's wonderful. So I have a 501c3 nonprofit organization. My full-time work is in public speaking, so I get the opportunity to travel the globe and speak at, mm -hmm. to schools and companies about diversity, equity, inclusion, and neurodiversity in the workplace autism in the workplace and so much more. But one of my side jobs that I do is I have a 501c3 where I provide life coaching and mentoring for a wide range of people with developmental disabilities. And ironically enough, 90 to 95% of the time, they don't want to talk about job interviews. They don't want to talk about post-secondary and resumes. They want to talk about the cute boy and cute girl. Now we can go back <laughs> into yeah. relationships. And I was yeah. the same way when I was yeah. their age, especially early young adult years. I just thought to myself so much during these times about my own personal experiences and sometimes meeting people in our community who have extreme key interests and can talk about those interests for long periods of time and sometimes have 
issues with things like active listening, mm. being able to comprehend the idea of eye contact, even though it's such a challenge within our community. So I guess that's also something I like to bring up in my talks now. Always when I send a speaker kit to a potential organization I'm working with, I throw in a topic around neurodiversity and relationships, knowing that mm -hmm. a lot of the times there isn't a clear-cut breakout or keynote session that's really focused on the topic. And a lot of our individuals are looking to pursue, whether it's romantic relationships or meaningful friendships, are looking for some form of meaningful connection. And it's really important to spread awareness and educate people on that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because there's just this stereotypical idea that neurodivergent individuals, autistic individuals, aren't social and that they don't want to be social, that they're these social recluses that just prefer being alone and don't want to interact with people. I don't find that to be true at all. I would say the majority of the people in my inner circle are neurodivergent in my own family, in my own friendships. But then in the hundreds of, into probably thousands of people that I've met in my career, 15 years plus of working with neurodivergence, that's not the case. People will come to me wanting help with, I want friends. I want to date. How do I do that? Now I work with people who are in long-term dating relationships. Some have been married. And then it's like, well, how do we do this? And I'm here. We had the attraction. We linked up. We're together. But now we're struggling. So I think it is such a huge desire for neurodivergent folks. What kind of tips and advice do you give your folks when you're mentoring them? Well, the most important things are just the very cookie cutter things that you would tell anybody who's trying to get into relationships for the first time. I always try to add an entertainment element to add something that it's just really resonating. Like, for example, the movie Hitch, for example, in the first few minutes of the movie, Will Smith talks about the fact that 90% of all language is nonverbal and being able to understand a few triggers, social cues, being able to understand a little bit about when somebody might be being flirtatious versus when mm -hmm. somebody might be a little turned off or somebody nudges you on the shoulder after you make a funny joke that could potentially lead to future levels of intimacy and for them to understand that. And then also when they're in the room, being able to do things like active listening, like we talked about being able to, even if it's very challenging for them to connect on a specific topic that their partner is talking about at the time, being able to show that you're caring enough to this individual to be in the room at that time and really put your best foot forward. So we talk about that. We talk about things like hygiene as well, being able to go about that whole process because we try not to judge a book by its cover, but there is a social norm of what many people call quote unquote handsome or beautiful. So being able to also keep that into consideration in the specific dates that you're going to. So a lot of the time it's really based on role-playing different scenarios to help them in those first early conversations about not only getting the date, but then going on those first few dates to build on that level of intimacy. Because regardless if you're uh, autistic or have a disability, all of us have those jitters at the beginning. So it's just training that I hope could be helpful for anyone. I think so. I totally agree with what you're saying, because 
Neurotypicals don't have it figured out by any stretch. Nope. Just the divorce rate. I don't really know that there's a statistic out there because we don't even know how many married folks are neurodivergent, honestly. But neurotypicals struggle with some of the same things. And because really the way our brain is functioning is only one piece of who we are. There's are so many other things, our personalities and our, our interests, our preferences, our background. I have this analogy of a backpack that we're taking with us through life and everything in the backpack is what makes us who we are. And it's our DNA, our brain, our experiences, everything's in there and it influences how we show up. And so all of that matters. Some of those tools that you're talking about, that's what part of what I do too, just teaching techniques. Even neurotypical folks don't realize that they're just inherently doing. I have a strategy I call the tennis volley. It's like playing tennis. You hit the ball, it's hit back to you and you just volley back and forth. Whereas sometimes somebody will hit a ball to you and you watch it go by and then you don't hit it back and you don't realize, oh, was I supposed to hit that back? It's like a conversation that's one way yeah. and just not realizing, oh, it's my turn. It's my turn to yeah. respond. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that example. So I had the wonderful opportunity to work on the last season of Netflix Emmy award-winning show. Uh, yes, yes. When I was consulting behind the scenes, we also had an autistic woman who was one of the day coaches who actually did that exercise with one of the cast members to go back and forth. And that's how you have the conversation. So actually literally having a tennis ball and going on the ground and just sending it to her, then she would send it back with questions. And it was just so interesting to get that kind of approach because I've never seen that done before. And I know sometimes, especially in the autism community, some individuals can talk about certain interests for long periods of time where the person on the receiving end does not get the opportunity to relay any information on a date. It's just uh, like hit that ball, yeah. hit the ball, hit the ball, hit the ball. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, it goes both ways. Sometimes it's the balls coming at me. But then sometimes neurotypical people will start that conversation and won't really be clear about the expectation of a response. And they'll just assume that whoever they're talking to knows they're waiting for a response. And then that person, that neurotypical person may get upset or offended or hurt when the response doesn't come back. And in reality, there's nothing intentional there. It's just a right. matter of not realizing, oh, you were waiting on me to respond it's important for people to learn how to say, hey, are we good for this afternoon? I'm planning on picking you up at five or whatever. And would you confirm with me that you'll be ready or wh whatever the conversation is to ask for that response? I think it's just so important for people to get clarity about what's really happening because so much misunderstanding happens in relationships and people mm -hmm. feel disrespected. They feel like it's an intentional harm that's being done or an intentional ignoring when the intent is rarely that it's not that, oh, I'm trying to ignore you. I'm trying to make you feel bad with most mixed neurotype relationships, unless there's other stuff there. I'm talking about if there's not other dysfunctional stuff, it's the intent. I tell people, look at that intent. Do you think someone was intentionally trying to slight you? And oftentimes say, no, I really don't think that they meant to hurt me, but I feel disrespected. We look at society going into 2023 and we are predominantly focused on the 20s and the 30 year olds of the world and also other generations as well are focused on the whole hookup culture. There's also a wide range of dating apps out there, which are 
offering instant gravitation, being able to swipe right, swipe left, and being able to get a certain amount of dates. And I see so much, not only having to deal with the thought process of relationships, but then also having to deal with the process of rejection. I was on two dates this week. I got ghosted on one date already. And it's tough when you have somebody, especially who's very young and starting off, to have this kind of stuff if they really don't understand. Maybe somebody's ghosting you, but are they ghosting you because they don't want to hurt feelings? They don't want to do this. There might be another message that they're just not conveying. And sometimes it's hard for individuals who are neurodiverse to understand. That's very true. And are you millennial? Yeah, I'm on the cusp. I just turned 35. Okay, so you're on the cusp. So millennials, you know, you guys were the first generation raised on technology and then Gen Z, you know, that's all they've ever known for sure. I'm 50 this year. My generation is the first generation to raise our children with nothing but technology their whole lives. And it really has made an impact on the interactive part of communication. It's just really different. Like you said, that swipe culture, it's so instant and there's not time to really stop and process sometimes. What do I want from this interaction? And it's so disposable. That's the other thing. It's so disposable. If there's somebody on my screen that something about them just doesn't resonate with me, then boom, it's over. There's no time to really explore that. Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote a book called Autism and Falling in Love. I was basically 26 at the time. I was just getting out of a heartbreaking relationship, loved a girl, and was really dealing with some challenging emotions at the time. And I wrote the book part as a love letter to her, just wishing her well in her future pursuits. But then also the second half was literally 10 years of just writing down a journal about my dating history and things I learned along the way in the hopes of helping other people. And we talk a little bit about this whole concept of mind blindness and sometimes not being able to understand the perspectives and why people are thinking this. Also, at the same time, we're still starting off on the whole online dating. We had eHarmony, we had Match.com. Now we have the rise of smartphones to the extent in 2023 where we have hundreds of dating apps yeah. available in our community. So I hope to just write that book in a way of helping individuals understand some of the things that they might have to go through when it comes to that. It's been on Amazon almost for 10 years now. Oh, wow. I'm, okay. What's I'm, the name of that again? Sure. Absolutely. It's Autism and Falling in Love. Okay. That sounds like such an important book. And I would love for you to talk a little on that today, because sure. most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be in relationships. And most of them, I will go ahead and say, are probably really struggling in their relationship. I have neurotypical people. I have neurodivergent folks that are listening to the podcast. So what kind of insights do you have to offer for those folks that are struggling? Well, one of the first things is to really just take time for yourself. Being able to put your best foot forward for your partner, but also to have the best value for yourself is really making sure that you take the time to really focus on you. Obviously, this is going to look different because it's a spectrum. Like we talk about disability being a spectrum. If you met one individual with a disability, you met just that one individual with a disability. 
there are some people who are going to be listening to this today who are just starting off in their romantic journeys. Other individuals are going to have been married for decades. And regardless of where you are on that road, it's important to understand that you always have to think about yourself to be able to put your best foot forward for a potential partner. Always understand your own self-worth, being able to self-reflect and also build on self-awareness of who you are as an individual will help tremendously towards hopefully a very successful relationship with a partner. Um, that's one of the big things for, for sure. 100%. And I want to just piggyback on that. When people come to work with me and ask for my help, oftentimes I tell them, you are painfully aware of what your partner or your spouse is doing that could be better. But there are so many people who are codependent in a way addicted to trying to take care of the other person or even manage the other person's emotions to make sure they're okay. And what suffers is trying to look out for everybody, for their partner, even the children. This is oftentimes the moms, but I see husbands and male partners also giving up themselves, losing their identity to the relationship, to the partner. And oftentimes, even though they're doing that, they'll still be focused on what they want the other person to change. So I always say, you can only do you. You can only take care of you and you can only know what you need and who you are and set the boundaries that you need for yourself. When we get on an airplane and fly, they tell people traveling with small children, you've got to put your oxygen mask on first. You have to take care of you and you have to know you in order to communicate to your partner what you need from them or what's not working and what is working. But I think that's a really good message. Well, it also leads to the end of the day about also just attraction. Before we are even in these committed relationships, we are looking for somebody who can not only add value, but you're looking at somebody and you're looking at the full package of what they bring to a specific relationship. And I see a lot of people, especially when they go through breakups and go through divorces, where there is a lot of pleading. There's a lot of begging at times for mm -hmm. somebody to take an individual back. But at the same time, what are you doing yourself to put your best foot forward to just show an individual who you are and the person that they fell for in the first place? So there is a lot that goes into that. And I love your analogy. It's about <laughs> being on the airplane and literally put your mask on first. Yeah. And you just said, who is that person that they fell in love with in the first place? So the concept of masking comes up all the time. And a lot of people are saying, oh, it was a bait and switch and didn't really show me who they were. And then I feel like I've been duped. My answer to that is, hold on. When we're dating, all of us, neurotypical, neurodivergent, whoever, we put on a dating mask and we have dating scripts, especially on that first date. You said you had two this week and got ghosted on one of them. We don't show up in our sweats and ball cap, which, you know, that's how I hang out most of my days. So over the course of time in dating, the idea is that we slowly start to reveal more and more about who we are. That's the whole idea. And I do think people rush relationships way too fast, especially now with this dating culture that's out there. A lot of my clients have been married for years, so it wasn't that as much. But the thing is, even 
after we get married, or if, let's say it's a long-term relationship, those roles start to change. We have different expectations for who we are, a new girlfriend or now a new wife, and then now a mom or a husband. Those roles start to change. My answer to that is this person's not who you originally met and neither are you because we change. Now the question is, do you still choose this person? Do they still choose you? How can either of you know if you're not being your authentic self as much as possible? Yeah, no, I, I there's really not much I could add to that. I mean, you just hit the ball right off the tee. It's about putting your best self out there, but it's tough also because I see a lot of situations that vary also based on location. I have always grown up in big cities and now today I see so many individuals who are like myself in their mid thirties, who are very focused on their career, are single. And then I speak at a business in Des Moines, Iowa, and I see that and again, I'm not trying to stereotypically say this, but a lot of the people I talked to were already married and had a kid. So I think there's a lot to your location as well and the norms that our society put around marriages and relationships as well. Oh, absolutely. Where you're located, the socioeconomic culture that you're in. I've had that conversation with my daughter. We're in Metro Atlanta here. She's been to a couple of schools that were more rural and where she ended up graduating from high school is more of a community that you graduate, you go to college, you're probably going to finish college, then maybe get married after college, real career focused. Whereas several of her friends from her other schools, we're not talking different parts of the country. This is different parts of the state. They're starting to get married, have children at her age, age 19 and 20. And she's like, mom, oh my gosh, that's more the cultural norm in those communities. And so it really varies. And that actually brings me to something that I have a lot of people come to me or they'll be on my YouTube lives sometimes and they're having these long distance relationships and they've met online and some of them are in different countries or they're across the globe or across the nation. And I think that's a very difficult relationship to manage, especially when it's formed from such a long distance because you have those differences that sometimes you can't see, you can't identify. And then they'll see each other periodically a few times a year if they're lucky. And of course, then you'd want it to be the best. You don't want to have any conflict. You're not going to bring up those things that annoy you. And then I've had people go on and get married from those relationships and then just be very disillusioned in their marriages. So I think it's very hard to have long distance relationships like that. I agree. Right before COVID, I was getting out a relationship with somebody who lived in Florida. And granted, it was only a two-hour flight. However, you have those challenges because you're FaceTiming all the time. You're trying to find ways of making that relationship work when there are romances that are sometimes embraced with physical intimacy, which cannot be placed in those long-distance relationships. Like you were mentioning, there's a culture difference for some individuals in very long distance relationships. I mean, internationally. So yeah, it definitely can be challenging. I would love it if you would share specifically, since you've been in mixed neurotype relationships where you said you dated mostly neurotypical individuals, in what way did your differences influence the relationship, both in a good way and a way that was, was challenging? 
I think in the good way, I think it's more on the lines of authenticity. I'm happy to say that I've never cheated on anyone that I've ever dated, even though I know several people who have. My authenticity, I wear on my sleeve as, as something that I've always tried to do in every relationship that because at the end of the day, there is that little honeymoon phase at the beginning, but I've always wanted to be my most true and authentic self to anyone that I was ever in a relationship with. And sometimes the challenges that have been associated with my relationships have been simply not being able to understand some forms of non-speaking, non-verbal language and being able to understand, for example, when somebody was giving the subtle hints that they wanted to move in and (laughs) to understand that, oh, okay, that's what they meant by that. So understanding the evolution of relationships through that non-communication Open lines of communication have always been an essential part of me succeeding in most relationships. And I've had my most successful relationships in the past with that kind of line of thinking between me and my partner. So those are really the big areas. I hear those types of things from my clients and I've experienced that as well. My marriage was definitely a mixed neurotype and I've dated another man for a couple of years who was not diagnosed, but he had two sons actually, who were diagnosed. And I recognized him to be neurodivergent too. He didn't agree with that, but I saw it anyway. Even just in my relationships with my daughter and with other family members, sometimes those nonverbals that are just the inherent part of a neurotypical language that's just so built into autopilot. It's just part of the way our brains process things. We don't even know that someone else might not be registering those nonverbals. And so it does create confusion. And I know for me, I've had to learn how to be very literal and very blunt. And a lot of my neurotypical clients feel uncomfortable, especially those in the South. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we are <laughs> down here in the South, everybody's all about it being passive and polite, and nobody likes to say how it is. Other than hospitality. Yes, it's very passive, but it can also be very passive aggressive. Clients are like, well, if I have to tell my partner what I want, does it count? Yes, it counts. If your partner's willing to follow through and meet that request for you, then yes, it still counts. And my neurodivergent folks are like, why wouldn't it count? It's just different ways of going about understanding relationships. I think what you're saying, though, about being authentic is the key. Without being stereotypical, like you said earlier, I find that more often than not, my neurodivergent folks that I know and work with are very authentic to a fault, very blunt. And my neurotypical folks sometimes don't know what to do with that. They don't know what that is and don't know how to be blunt like that in return. It's important for both partners to learn as much as they can about themselves first. Like you said, I really encourage curiosity, be a detective about yourself, about your partner, learn as much as you can. And then that gives you the tools that you need to interact. So what you just said is the the exact kind of things that I hear every day from partners. And I will say that it's very difficult for a lot of the folks who've been married for 20, 30 years, and they're in a committed relationship and had just all these years not understood why they can't understand each other, but yet They know they care. They know they love each other. It's very painful for a lot of people. 
I loved the opportunity to get to work on Netflix Love on the Spectrum because every cast member I see with that theme of authenticity, even though there are different individuals with different levels of development, it's just so beautiful to see two individuals just going on a date and just being able to be authentically themselves, but also to not necessarily go through the whole 20 questions. There are some perceived notions that you have to make somebody chase you on the first few dates, for example, The Bachelor and lots of drama, but associating yourself with shows and seeing people who might be a little different than us, being able to just find love. I think some of the most authentic dates I've ever seen have been on that show. So gain opportunity. Mm -hmm. Salt, and then also writing a book and getting an opportunity to speak around the country and getting to meet individuals who are trying to pursue romantic relationships, whether it be a company I speak at or a school with younger students. It's truly just been amazing to say. I'm so glad that you circled back to that because I've followed your channel for a while. I think I first saw you on TikTok. It's been a while and I've just been watching what you're doing. And that show, actually, the producers reached out to me too and taught oh. me about consulting. But I remember at the time saying, I don't think I'm quite the right fit. When I saw you post, I was like, oh, that's great. I was really excited to see that it was going to be you because I think you're the perfect person to be the consultant for that show. And it's nice to see more and more shows that are educating the world about what neurodiversity really is. And we have shows that started putting it out there, just very stereotypically, you know, Big Bang Theory, just a lot of the really extreme stereotypes, even other shows that just have characters even in them. The focus is not on neurodiversity, but there are characters and plots about yeah. neurodiversity. And I'm just thrilled to see that because I tell folks, you know, you absolutely 100% know people with autism. They're your neighbors. They're in your church. They're your bankers. They're everywhere. And I love when people like you are putting your story out there for people to hear about more and more. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you just really would like to share with us that would be really helpful? Yeah. The most important thing that I continue to tell people is really just focus on being self-aware of who you are. And then you're just trying to put your best foot forward out there. I sound like a broken record at times, but that is truly what I've seen be the most successful for the young adults that I've worked with. And ideally, these lessons are something that anybody could be using, regardless if you're a young adult, been dating for numerous years now. It's really important. And if you're ever interested in learning more, definitely check out my website, learn a little bit more about me via my social media channels and see the work that we're currently doing. Because in the entertainment world, especially in addition to full-time public speaking, which I currently do, I really want to see more representation around the idea of dating. Uh, because I know there are individuals in our community who have disabilities who really want to pursue meaningful relationships, but sometimes have challenges doing so. So breaking down stigmas and making sure people understand that people with disabilities sometimes just want what everyone else wants. To yeah, help. absolutely. What is your primary demographic? So I can make sure we convey this to the folks listening for your mentoring. What would that age group be in the demographic there? 
Sure. Usually it's 18 to 24 just because of adult consent. And we work with a wide range of individuals and life coaching positions as well. So we also work with a wide range of therapists, educators, and parents who are serving the disability community or have a child who has a disability. Okay. That's just fantastic. I'll definitely make sure that's in the show notes for today. And I'm so glad you're out there doing what you're doing. It's great to connect. Yeah. Vice versa. Have a great weekend. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much to all of my guests of season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast. These folks are bringing their lives to you to help all of you out there who are trying to figure out your own relationships. If you'd ever be interested in being on a podcast, just email us at gethelp@jodycarlton.com. Also, be sure to visit me online at jodycarlton.com to see all the resources that I have available to you. Until next time.